five, four, three, two, one, Bazinga. Bazinga. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the new Now Showing podcast. This is I've Never Seen, Goodfellas and Get Out. I'm Sam Houston and I'm joined today once again by Jordan Luke McDonald. Good afternoon everybody. So we're going to be looking at two very different films. I said last week, uh, trying to find a connection between them. I, after seeing Get Out, I can't see as much of a connection. <laughs> Maybe it's quite possible. <laughs> the one I could say is that they both won one Oscar and deserved probably to win more. And also, they also both feature a standout, maybe career-defining performance from their lead actor uh, with uh, Kaluuya and, uh, and Ray Liotta. And we're going to be looking at that in a minute. First, we're going to be going through the usual stuff we go through each podcast, uh, what we've been watching in the news. So uh, we'll start off with, with what I've been watching. Um, it's actually, to be honest, I'm going to have to give the floor to Jordan for the majority of the section because this week I've been a little bit, um, maybe a little bit of a bad podcast host when we talk about films because I haven't really watched too much. Um, you know, the football's back, so I've been watching a lot of that. And, and since the last podcast, Arsenal won 100% of their games, whereas Man City, Jordan's team have only won 50 so kind of and um, so I've been watching a lot of football playing a lot of games so I haven't really had much uh, time for the films but I have I've watched a few I watched finished off the MCU rewatch that I talked about last week by finishing off uh, Far From Home and also unrelated to the MCU but when we're talking about Spider-Man films probably the best I watched uh, Into the Spider-Verse and I watched Spectre um, I don't know what do you feel how do you, what's your opinion on James Bond films how do you, you know how do you feel Jordan I haven't seen too many of them um, I've so for sure I know I've I've seen Spectre and Skyfall, and then I've seen bits and pieces of other films. Um, I've seen enough Casino Royale to know like what happens and stuff. I've I, I've seen I'm sure I've seen bits of Quantum of Solace, but I'm not too sure like what actually happens in that. And I don't actually think I've seen properly any of the non Daniel Craig ones. So it's probably something I need to get around to doing at some point. But as we've established last week. And we're going to establish, I'm sure, for the coming weeks on this series, there's probably going to be a few films that I should have already seen that I've not. So Daniel Craig, uh, sorry, James Bond is probably um, not as high up as some of the other films. But yeah, no, I I, I, I don't mind it. I think it's, it's um, I think Skyfall was a really, really good film, like, especially um, compared to Spectre, which you, you said you've seen in the past week. I thought Skyfall was, was far better than Spectre. Yeah, I um, I have kind of a similar opinion that I have seen quite a few of the the non Daniel Craig ones, but I think they are. It's so hard to watch them without, you know, you have to. The only way to really appreciate them for these days is to think of them at the time because they are heavily dated and they're you know they're very um, stereotypical of, of the time they were made. Um, and maybe that was the problem, maybe going into the 80s and 90s when they were still making them, but trying to capture the old vibe. Um, but I think Daniel Craig films have done really well of modernising them whilst keeping up with the um, the, the stereotypical James Bond, you know, the tropes. You can't ignore, you know, the the, the things that make it a James Bond film. Um, but, you know, I think that Spectre maybe wasn't the... I saw, I saw it again this week. Uh, I thought it was better than I remembered. And it's good. It's obviously How Do You Follow Up on Skyfall, which I think is one of my favourite... Um, one of my favourite films. Uh, it's you know it's definitely in my top kind of fifty or whatever. Um, and but I think it's not the weakest Spectre. I think it's better than Quantum of Solace. But um, yeah, I, I would say I'm a big fan of the Daniel Craig films. Uh, but and there is more. Is there any more uh, in kind of British? Thing, you know, is there any more well-known and more British films than the James Bond uh, saga? I, I don't think there is. Not films. So, not. No, no. So you know. 
it's always uh, something as, as a British person, you know, you can look back fondly and know that that's what the the world sees us as, as James Bond, and uh, hopefully. And, yes, yeah, so I watched that, and other than that, not too much, uh, you know, a lot of the shows I talked about last week, but I'll tell you one thing uh, that I did want to mention that I, uh, I have been watching this last week, and oh, it's just so good. It's just so good. What? It's a uh, Disney Plus documentary series, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Oh my god, that stuff, it absolutely slams. It is so good. I love Jeff Goldblum with all my heart. He's one of my favourite human beings. He's just so... Oh, he just—I don't know—he's such an enigma of a human being. I'm just like, going to say he's an enigma. <laughs> yeah, it's like people, how... like such a character, and like you just never know what's like a performance and what's just him, and it's kind of hard to to tell sometimes. He's like kind of cool, but he's kind of old, so he's out of the loop. But he kind of knows it, so he feels kind of in the loop. And he's kind of, in a way, a little creepy. In a way, he's a little bit, he's funny and he's a little bit sensual. Oh, honestly, <laughs> he just brings something to the table, honestly. And and uh, and there's a lot of those kind of variety TV programs, a lot of variety documentaries that I'm quite a big fan of. Things like um, Louis Theroux's Weird Weekends back in the '90s and uh, The Moaning of Life, which was the more recent Carl Pilkinson show following on from uh, mm-hmm. Idiot Abroad those are they're, they're, it's, it's another one of those where it's uh, looking at the weird parts of society which you know have been done a million times and it does have I think it starts off with tattoos uh, I think the first episode or first few episodes is tattoos of the Jeff Goldblum one and I was like oh you know it's the same kind of thing as usual um, you know they're going to go to tattoos he's going to go do wrestling he's going to do like the, the same stuff they usually do but then a couple of episodes down he's got a whole episode about denim He's got a whole episode about barbecuing and ice cream. It's like right. those are quite, quite niche subjects. Like a whole, like, you know, half an hour on or forty minutes, or whatever. So it is. it is kind of a moaning of life style thing. It's not a documentary, is it? Is it? I'm not. It's a documentary. It. Yeah, it's a, it's a documentary. Sorry, not moaning of life. Um, what was the? I can't remember. What it was called the Carl Pilkington one that was. He did the one after. Uh, Idiot Broad, where he was... Is it called The Morning of Life? Yeah, yeah The Morning of Life. It's like, it's yeah, like yeah a, that was a documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it is a documentary, but it's also kind of... I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I know what you mean. But it kind yeah, of... Yeah, so... Okay, because just Jeff Goldblum, I remember... I remember seeing a... um, Like a cooking thing that he did one time. I don't know if it's like a... He, I don't know if it's like a segment on a show or like where it was just like his own thing, but it had... um. Bryce Dallas Howard as like a guest and they were like cooking I can't remember what they made it was I don't know something about an avocado or something I think but it was like the first segment was just Jeff Goldblum walking around a supermarket just making loads of random quirky comments about food and stuff in a supermarket it was very See, I, intriguing I, I've been just the first like chunk of, of it in in, um, in one sitting the other day but I haven't watched all of it so I can't say if it's from that series but I'd guess not because it's not particularly well segmented. It's just like going around people. But yeah, whole hour on whole half now on denim is quite different. <laughs> yeah, I just want to talk about that because I just honestly, Jeff Goldblum, absolute, just just daddy material. So um, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Um, what have you been watching in the last week since we last talked? I believe you've watched a few top films. I watched some very good films. Uh, so obviously, I watched uh, Goodfellas, which we're going to talk about shortly. Um, oh, I rewatched Blade Runner as well. I rewatched Blade Runner. Rewa- yeah, I saw you. Re- I think did you relog it on Letterbox? I think. I think I saw you. I don't. Re- I don't know if I did. I always forget to log shit on Letterbox. But I. Um, I don't know. But honestly, that film second better second time. I tell you. Okay, I will get around to rewatching it at some point. I'll have to add it to my films yeah. to rewatch. It might have already done actually. It might have already be on there. I can't remember. 
But what I do but remember is that I so I saw Goodfellas, which we're going to talk about shortly. I also watched Spotlight, uh, very good. I'd heard good things. I didn't realise that it had, that it had been so successful during awards. Um, was very very su- not not surprised, but like kind of. I don't know. I just didn't realise it was going to be as good as it was. Very very good. Um, mm-hmm. Ruffalo was was very good. Michael Keaton was very good. Rachel McAdams was very good. And like it was just very. It's like one of those films where, it, it could have been done so wrong. Yeah. Because it's like a true story and it's quite a sensitive subject, and it could have been just done very very blandly, but this was like very yeah. good. It was kind of. I don't know. I wrote this in my letterbox review. It's kind of Fincher-esque and it's like dialogue and tension and stuff. It was, there was kind of like a, it, I kind of drew parallels to the social network. If you've seen that, um, in the way that it was done, cause obviously that's based on a true story and well, somewhat of a true story, depending on whose interpretation you want to take of the, of the events. But yeah, it was very, uh, very good. Like the dialogue was, was awesome. And like, it was so, I don't know, it just had this really nice feel to it, like a very well-constructed film, even though the subject matter was less than, um, less than. So, yeah, I watched that. I also watched uh, Pulp Fiction, which I finally got around to after so many times of people telling me, oh, you have to watch Pulp Fiction, you have to watch Pulp Fiction. What do you think, man? I love that film. It's one of my favourites. It's uh, it's in my top four in Letterboxd. I am... I'm going to speak too early here. I'm going to speak out of turn. But I watched Pulp Fiction at like just after I'd watched Goodfellas. Yeah. And I have to say Pulp Fiction won out, I'm afraid. Um, really? Yeah. Pulp, I don't know, just something about like Tarantino has grown on me really, really. So like, mm-hmm. so one of my... F- well, the thing is, right, Pulp Fiction um, is my best friend from uni, his favourite film. Mm-hmm. The friend who also recommended I watch Blade Runner. And yeah. my one of my other flatmates from uni, uh, my second year flatmate, no third year flatmate, he um his favorite film is Goodfellas, <laughs> so it was like a battle of the flatmates contest between the two films. I, I, Tarantino's really grown on me. When I first, I think the first film I watched of Tarantino's, I think it was Kill Bill. Yeah, it was either Kill Bill or Reservoir Dogs. I can't remember which way around I watched them because I watched them pretty close together. Um. And like the first year of uni, and I had never seen Tarantino film. I don't think until that point. Um, and obviously, my flatmate was like a very big Tarantino fan, and his favorite film was Pulp Fiction, and he'd seen I think all the films that had come out up until that point, if not maybe a couple of the early ones he hadn't seen. But yeah, Pulp Fiction he'd recommended for a while, and like honestly, when I watch when I watched Tarantino's films the first time, Kill Bill, I was like, this is so unnecessary, so over the top the violence is unnecessary what's the point of this film it has no meaning yeah. and all this sort of stuff and I watched Rise of My Dog and I was like I really like this it's more grounded like it's um, it's got nice like dark but also funny it has really good dialogue the music was awesome there's like obviously iconic um, scene with the dancing to the music which which mm-hmm. everyone knows if you've seen that film and honestly that like that was like what I've expected to like more from Tarantino the sort of more grounded stuff um, then I watched Inglorious Bastards and I thought that was really, really good, even though obviously it has, still has that over-the-top violence. And then I remember reading something talking about Tarantino, which was talking about, um, like, why, like, the, like, what's the 
purpose of the of violence in his films. And one of the things there's obviously like loads of interpretations and loads of sort of things you can attribute it to. One of the really most interesting things I read about the violence in Tarantino films, which is actually one of the most simple things I've ever read about it, is the violence is so over the top because violence in films has become so desensitized that it has to get to that level before you kind of look at it and go okay that is violent like yeah yeah and there's some, there's some films which do that in a more subtle way where it's like the violence is so subtle that you notice it more because it's kind of like mm-hmm. it's not in your face and you have to kind of think about it and think okay that is actually really really violent and really dark or whatever but like the Tarantino films especially if you look at some of like Kill Bill and um English Bastards and so on is that the violence is like so and like uh, that that scene in, in Django Unchained as well which I saw re- fairly recently um, and it's like you, it has to get to that level before you kind of go okay this is supposed to be violent <laughs> um, yeah and then I, your Pulp Fiction though it had had like moments like that for sure but also it did feel kind of a bit more grounded like Reservoir Dogs and like Jackie Brown which I actually really like and I know a lot of people don't like those as much some people really really like that like the really really obviously Tarantino stuff some people like the more nuanced like sort of toned down stuff like Jackie Brown and Reservoir Dogs I just like all of it now I've just kind of come to like it and even Kill Bill which when I first watched it I probably you know had this kind of questioning attitude to me like what is the point of this so if I watch that now again I still need to watch Kill Bill too, so I probably will rewatch the first one at some point um before I do watch the second part uh, I probably like that even more now. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. It's a really, really good film. Anyway, I'm rambling about so, Tarantino now. <laughs> well, so with uh, specifically Pulp Fiction before we move on, um, which is, you know, I think maybe sometimes is so popular. It's such a common, like, people that don't really like films have it in, as a film poster kind of thing yeah. that I feel like it's disrespected uh, as the actual film it is. I, I think that... Um, it really is one of my favourites, and I think it, you know, it quite deservedly could stand as my favourite film if I was to have to be forced to push into to that. It's, it's one of the contenders. Um, for you, where does it stack amongst other Tarantino films? I was just for about me, to, it's his best. Yeah, I was just about to say that I. There were moments for me in Pulp Fiction where I was kind of going, well, I don't quite like this part, or um, some of. Like some of the acting in certain parts, I don't know. Like the the chemistry was really good there between, like obviously between John Travolta and uh, Jack Samuel Jackson. Um, I like the the narratives like approach to it. Um, it's kind of because I watched Memento last week, as I mentioned in the last podcast, and it had that kind of not as obviously and not as um, not as meaningfully for the plot at least. But it depends on interpret that as well. But uh, the the narrative, the way that it was sort of reorganized, the the ordering of of this, the events of the story, um, I would I, I struggled with Pulp Fiction though, because as I mentioned last week with Blade Runner, it's one of those films where I don't know if I'm judging it on on its prestige or judging it on its on its merit. Um, yeah. So I I did put it in a I've got a Tarantino ranked list on Letterboxd and I ended up putting it third, but I don't know whether that's just i don't know how to because mm. so currently i have kill bill last which probably will move up when i rewatch it uh reservoir dogs is is it see i said i say that i like the more grounded stuff but reservoir dogs is six jackie brown is five 
Uh, I got mm-hmm. Django Unchained at four, Pulp Fiction at three, Once More Time in Hollywood at two, and Inglourious Bastards at one. I think Hollywood's really growing on me, though. I don't know what it is, because I was, I was at home um, last week, and I was waiting for my dad to watch uh, a TV programme, and Once More Time in Hollywood was on Sky Cinema, like, just on the TV rather than, like, on the demand. It was just like yeah. they were just showing it on one of the Sky Cinema channels. And I just put it on while I was waiting for my dad. And then my dad came in and he was like, oh, we're carrying on with this program. And I was like, yeah, I was watching this. He's like, what's this? I was like, oh, it's a new Tarantino film. And then he, because he hadn't seen it, he was like, do you want to watch it? And I was so tempted just to re-watch it because like, I don't know what it is. It's something about that feel of that film. It's just so good. that Yeah. I don't know how to describe it because as with the plot, like with some of the films I've watched recently, the, there isn't much of a plot really. Like, yeah, not not very much happens, but there what I does say happen is just so building. cool. And okay, so oh, I know what's we... called by your name, which you love as well. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say before we go into the next bit, I did want to quickly ask you about calling by your name because it was the first ever in the in series zero of uh, Now Showing Podcast. It's the first film we did in in, uh, in detail. Um, it is now jumped because of that podcast onto one of my favorite films. It's, it's up there for me as well, and I just. Didn't want to go into as much detail for for time reasons, but I just want to know your thoughts on, on that absolutely beautiful film. It is beautiful in all senses of the word, as I wrote on Letterboxd. I mean, the, I don't think I liked it as much as you did, and I watched Lady Bird last week as well, which I mentioned last week, um, another sort of coming-of-age film, which I did prefer, I think, to call me by your name, just about. Um, but, like, Come by your name is just beautiful. Like the the construction mm-hmm. of Italy, like the way you just kind of feel like you're there. Obviously, Chalamet is is a beautiful human being. <laughs> yeah, he knows it. He Be- knows it. Beautiful in all senses, as I wrote on Letterbox, because like it just looked nice. That had a nice feel to the film. The acting was really good. Chalamet, obviously, on screen is is a nice bit of. Uh... Let's go, man. But yeah, so yeah, no, it's it's um, it was a good film. I, I don't think I liked it as much as you did, but um, mm. I, I did I did really like it though, and yeah, I I heard that because I didn't know it was I didn't know it was based on a book, um, and apparently there's like a sequel to the book, and there's apparently talk they're gonna do a sequel for the film. I don't know if that's actually gonna happen, whether that's true or not, but uh, from what I've read, there's there's talk that they might do a sequel. So I'll be uh, looking out for that for sure. Indeed, indeed. And I've got to say, beautiful in all senses of the word is probably the review that I'd also give to uh, Jeff Goldblum, the, uh, <laughs> the world according to Jeff Goldblum. So I think that wraps up uh, everything we've been watching for the last week between the podcasts. And we're going to be moving on to the news section. Uh, a little bit more news than last week because things are starting to become a little bit more normal again, I'd say. Uh, a lot of countries are, are relaxing their uh, COVID measures and stuff, and it's allowing a lot of... Um, creative um, endeavours to continue, people are going back to filming I know that uh, the Marvel shows have started filming again, for example, because I, I saw that Anthony Mackie was talking about how uh, he, Anthony Mackie had some big long interview with a lot of uh, important points that we can't really get into with the time we have but he did talk about how they're releasing that soon so a lot of things are going back to uh, normal and uh, a lot of things are being delayed and such, so we'll start off uh, and I'm going to first go that um I actually didn't see it. I own the comics. I was looking forward to reading the comics uh, to then watch the film, but uh, to watch the series. But I'm going to talk about the boys. Um, the boys season two uh, is going to premiere 
in September, beginning of September, on Amazon. Um, first three episodes are going to come out of the day, and then the next five weeks, the next five episodes are released. So each week for five weeks, they're releasing episodes four to eight. And um, we touched on a little bit before we recorded, but a strange decision, really, uh, seeing as, okay, September, things might be a bit more normal, but an awful lot of people around the world will still be... Um, off work, a lot of people will still be out of jobs, a lot of people will still be furloughed and so on and so forth. Um, the idea of making people wait five weeks when they could easily get a lot of people to binge it at once, would you agree, is a very strange decision from Amazon? It's strange. Obviously, The Boys Season 1, which I've seen, um, came out like in one go, I'm pretty sure, because a lot of people binged it, I'm pretty sure. And mm-hmm. I, I believe so. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it uh, immediately when it came out because my brother and my dad had seen it before I did. But I watched it in like two days, and I don't know why they've done it. it. It seems a bit of a strange decision because obviously we were in lockdown still, and by September things might have eased up a little bit. But even still, like the first season was so well received, at least by the majority of people, and. I don't know why they're doing it because it's on streaming service. It's not like they're gonna have, you know, and and it's on Amazon Prime, so you have to be a subscriber to to, to watch it. It yeah. seems a bit weird they're releasing it weekly because Amazon don't really stand to gain much from that, other than the talk around it. Maybe it being prolonged for an extra couple of like four or five weeks. Maybe that's gonna, I don't know, maintain the hype for it. I don't know, but it, it just seems a bit weird that they would change because a lot of tv shows now seem to be going the other way and they're releasing weekly or every whatever however many days and then they'll have the the full season available on on like iplayer or um yeah i was gonna on like, say on like a box I, set and it just seems weird that they've gone the other way yeah i was gonna say because iplayer have done that with with a number of shows like um noughts and crosses or the a word where the whole series has come out immediately on iplayer but then they're releasing them every week on telly anyway um, which I think is slightly strange, but I think that does seem to suit both the binging um, modern-day, you know, millennial types as we are, and also suits, you know, my nan who, you know, who's happily watch it every week. So um, I, I think that that was. I don't know. I don't I think, think the there's boys... too many seventy-year-olds watching the boys, though. No, not the boys. Sure, but I think <laughs> but it just seems weird that the they released it weekly. Yeah, but that's what I mean with the boys. It just seems because most of the majority of its audience, I would assume, is going to be like younger people, mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. like you know millennials, whatever you say. Um, yes, it just seems a bit odd that they would they would go for that. I don't know. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll work out for them. I don't know. I'll watch maybe they're it anyway. Trying to com- they're trying to combat the free trialers that so that they're going to make ah, people actually have perhaps. to buy it. Maybe that could work. Okay, so moving on to the next news piece. Yeah. So another bit of TV news, just quickly. Uh, Love, Death, and Robots. Um, which I absolutely loved the first season of on Netflix. That's been confirmed for season two. Um, so Miller and Fincher, the two producers, are returning, and it's going to be a new supervising director, Jennifer Yu Nelson, who was uh, who's been involved in a few animated stuff and more recently a bit more uh, live action stuff. So she was head of story for Kung Fu Panda. She was director for Kung Fu Panda Two and co-director for Kung Fu Panda Three. She was director of The Darkest Minds and story artist for a couple of animated films like Madagascar and How to Train a Dragon. Um, but yeah, that's going to come back. I really, really liked the first season. Um, it was nice because there was like a lot of different animated styles, lots of different stories, uh, predominantly, if not exclusively, connected through some kind of sci-fi uh, 
sort of universe, but not obviously not like in the same universe, but just they're interconnected by this like sci-fi genre. But the animation style was really nice in a lot of them. There was a lot of really interesting stories that came through that. And I think it's really nice because it's allowing animation that's not just aimed at children to have a sort of big stage, especially on Netflix. Like they've obviously it's been well received. They've commissioned the second season. Um and a lot of people really like the the first season. There's like so many different styles, like I say, I recommend watching it if you haven't seen it. Um yeah that's I don't think you've seen it have you no I haven't no because so that's on my that's gotta be on my watch list yeah I would because it's really good because you can kind of it's like an anthology style thing so you can watch them in kind any of black mirrorish is that right would I yeah you say it, it, it kind of is and like there is this there is this like sci-fi esque flavour to it where a lot of the stories have some mm. kind of futuristic or alien or but there's a lot of dark stuff in there there's a lot of funny stuff in there so there's some episodes you might not like as much as others um and like some of the nicest animation styles for example are in the weaker stories and vice versa but um mm. overall i would say it's a really good series there's like a, i can't remember how many episodes about there's a bunch of different episodes when there's yeah there's loads um and yeah i recommend mm. it because obviously um i i don't know just there's, there's something about just having these like different stories that are coming through a bit more like adult themed adult centered folk and like focused uh stories through animation i think as well like there's this um because i know there there's a blade runner animated series that they're doing um which mm. so obviously there was the animated um yeah short, short film which we talked about last week which came in between the two films and now they're doing a Blade Runner animated series as well. So that should be quite interesting to look out for to see how that develops and whether they continue that forward as well. Yeah, I think we can uh, both agree that then there should be a push towards um, making it seem acceptable to create animated uh, properties for adults. Um, you know, it's all... Um, did I say that right? It's, yeah. it's all, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the most most of animation still appeals to children. I think uh, maybe there's a lot of really good stories that can be told through for animation that um, that are cut off due to the um, kind of that usual system. And uh, and uh, I'd, yeah, I didn't know about the Blade Runner thing. And as I've become, been pretty in love with Blade Runner since I saw it last week, uh, yeah, I'm looking. Out, I'll look out for that. And moving on to the next thing, we're going to go back into the movies, and we're going to be following up on something we talked about last week. So cinemas are coming back, as I said last time. Um, Odeon has announced a mask optional policy, which I'd argue I'm very against. I mean, cinemas are you know breathing in the same air for two hours and all that stuff, and and the lobbies, a lot of people coming and going. I personally would say that it should be a mask required policy. I think Cineworld are going for that, which is nice. I've got a Cineworld card, so I'm going to be going to Cineworld and uh, and following that policy and hopefully not getting coronavirus. And so that Modi announced that, and then Cineworld this morning, I woke up to a notification on my phone today, uh, when we're recording this Wednesday the, the 1st, uh, to a notification that, boom, moved back from the 10th to the 31st of July uh, for the Cineworld opening, which is annoying for me, but if it means I don't die, then, you know, I guess positive. If it means that my people that, uh, you know, I, I touch don't die, that's good. How's it, but, working? How's it working for your subscription? Do you just get a refund or extension or something? So they took out the first month. So I think that was April. Uh, they took out that month. March, April. Yes, <laughs> April. Uh, and then they haven't taken out since. 
and I don't think they'll take it out for July either. Uh, and I think the one month I paid for, they're going to add to the end for free, or I'm going to get in okay. a gift card or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, so there's that, and um, I completely, you know, I, I forgot I even had it for a long time. It's been so long since I had it. But yeah, so that they're opening up later, and with the cinema, and maybe one of the reasons why the cinema is opening later is because a lot of the films have been pushed out yet again. And I won't be surprised if I'm reporting on this again in a couple of podcast time because it seems like they keep pushing it along because they don't want to have a film that is showing to half of the world. They want to wait until everyone can see it. So Tenet has been delayed Mulan has been delayed I don't believe it's official but I think it's heavily rumoured that the New Mutants will be delayed again I mean that film was supposed to come out about 12 years ago at this point Um, which you know as as if anyone that's a long term listener of the uh, podcast can tell you know I love Dark Phoenix I love the Fox films um, which is a quite rare opinion I think Uh, I think a lot of people didn't like them so I wanted to get that New Mutants film that last uh, nice taste of Disney-less Marvel um but yeah, you know, however long we have to wait for Mulan, Tenet, and and uh, New Mutants, we'll, we'll, we can only find out later. But they're telling us that it's going to be the start of August. Um, I, for one, do not believe them. No, it's like I said last week. Though it's a shame because there's so many films I want to see that are coming out. Well, are supposed to be coming out soon. So many of the films that I wanted to see that got delayed, like uh, No Time to Die and so on, and then and Black Widow as well. And then just like I said last week, there's just this something different about watching the films in cinema and I mean to be fair I'll I'll wait because I know that that the films I'm gonna see regardless so it doesn't make much difference when I see them it's just a bit of a shame I have to wait a bit longer but you know there's a lot of other things going on in the world right now so probably mm-hmm. um you know it's probably not the biggest uh biggest concern but yeah it's a shame but I will and as you say next week we probably will end up reporting that some of these films yeah, yeah. push back again um, I think Black Widow and No Time to Die made the right decision in pushing it back to November because even yeah. if they're going to have to push back again which hopefully I don't think they will but in case they do um, that means that they're not going to have to keep pushing it back they won't have to push it back because there's no concern until it comes to mid-October time over whether the film can get released well, it, was like, um, it was like when Tenet said though that it's coming to cinemas in July with that trailer and it was like no chance Like, yeah, no, it, it, was, just, it was just so bold of them to, to want to push for that but obviously... <laughs> Even saying the start of August is is a bit um, hopeful. Maybe they should have said later well, the th- on. The thing as well, with, you mentioned Odeon having the mask optional thing. One, the So Odeon's supposed to be opening like any time now. Obviously, it's the 1st of July yeah, today 10th, when we're recording. Um, I, think, I think Odeon's opening like the 4th or something because I saw a listing on my local Odeon. They're showing Interstellar in IMAX on the 7th of July. Oh, seventh is the first day. I think that the government is allowing it from the seventh. I think I might be right. Okay, which, I thought it was which the case fourth. that makes sense. Oh, okay, whatever. Well, know. The, I know the fourth is like the restaurants and stuff. Oh, okay. But so any, maybe anyway, so I, I know that they're showing like they had all the films that were on before. So they have like a select few showings, for, like Birds of Prey, Little Women, which is your favorite film of all time, of course. <laughs> um, what else are they showing? Like Knives Out. I think we're still showing. Um, I'm not sure if that's like a re release in the cinemas yeah well, it they, is it did, it, did, it did leave the cinemas um but yeah so interstellar's one i was i i was actually tempted when i saw that to go see it in imax because as, as i said last week it's one of those films i want to see in this i wanted to see in the cinema but i never got around to um and it's in imax but then it's also like how busy is it going to be it's mask optional yeah. so i don't want to risk it and it's kind of one of those things where i don't know it's i don't know i'll see i'll have to see 
all I'm going to say is that we need to move on, but all I'm going to say is that I think the Cineworld have made the right decision because I feel a lot more comfortable going to a Cineworld with a mask required policy than I do going to Odeon with a mask option yeah. policy. It makes me feel a lot more secure. Yeah. Okay, so what have you got next? Uh, some Margot Robbie news? Yeah, so, speaking of Birds of Prey, um, Birds of Prey writer Christina Hodson uh, is going to be working with Margot Robbie again. This is reports of a Paris the Caribbean uh, female-fronted film franchise of sorts. Um, it's reportedly not intended to be a spin-off of the original Pirates of the Caribbean, but an original story with new characters. Now, to me, that sounds like a does spin-off. That not, does that know what a spin-off is? Yeah, yeah, what does that mean? Is that rebooting the whole franchise? or I got no idea whether it just means... I don't know what they mean. It, it's a spin-off. It's a spin-off with Margot Robbie. Now, I don't know what they're doing with this because obviously there's talk of reboots of the actual main franchise and then there's in and out as to whether Johnny Depp's going to return. There's um, talk that Karen Gillan is going to be play a major role, if not the front role of the reboot. But I don't know whether Karen Gillan would be in the main franchise, whether she's going to be in this franchise, or she's not going to be in it at all. I don't know. I want to see Karen Gillan in more stuff, though. Um, I still need to see Jumanji, uh, the next level, because I loved the first one, and Karen Gillan was great in that. So I want to see her in more stuff. She's good in Marvel. She's good in Doctor Who. So just get her in more stuff, please. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Margot Robbie in a spin... Not a spin-off <laughs> of Paris the Caribbean. Yes, and moving on, um, it's a bit back, back to uh, maybe me and, and Jordan Luke's roots. Uh, me, We're both uh, big football fans, and here's a bit of football film news. Uh, the producers of Maradona uh, it, have confirmed that they are going to be making a documentary looking at England international top goalscorer Wayne Rooney. Uh, so they are creating a new uh, documentary looking at the the England's all-top goal scorer and uh, Man United's um, most capped player is that what I'm about? no that's obviously Ryan Giggs what I'm on about anyway <laughs> that's about football um, the most he's got, Man United all-top goal scorer uh, produced by uh, directed by BAFTA winner Matt Smith who did the uh, Rio Ferdinand documentary um, after his, his wife passed and I personally uh, loved the Maradona documentary, and I don't think you saw it, but um, as a football fan, um, it, it was great, and on a film level, I thought it did a really good job of not bigging up Maradona too much. It wasn't um, obsessed around the fella. I love Maradona. He's one of my favourite players ever, but it looked at his rise and fall, about how he had this kind of almost split personality of, of Diego, this kind of um, grounded Argentinian come from uh, a hard background, appreciated what he did, um, you know, loved his family, all that stuff. And then there was this kind of other personality that he had within him, which was Maradona, showboating, arrogant, drug addict, like a, absolutely obsessed with himself. You know, he was, you know, always um, out with, uh, out the early hours in the morning, didn't care about his career. You know, he, he had this... Um, kind of media side to him that kind of overtook him as years uh, went on when he became gone from kind of a, a bit of a reject someone that had a lot of name about him but didn't do too well at Barcelona to going to, to Napoli and being the the 
king of the the show the, you know the, the major part the, the key part between their first two and and to this day only two championships uh it was just a really really good because uh, there's a problem maybe sometimes with uh, biographical films that they get a little bit lost and they're just kind of trying to tell a story of a bloke and I think that, that Maradona did a really good job of coming up with this clear narrative of this Diego versus Maradona thing and, um, and no, I, I gonna, hope I was, no, I, say, I, I was just going to say is it is it like a documentary like classical style or is it kind of more because I've not seen it yet is it is it or is it more like does it have like kind of a filmic quality to it, like a more of like a narrative, like in terms of like how I'd, is it constructed? I'd say it would be more traditional documentary style. Um, it was it it was showing um, parts of his. It was done through a lot of interviews. It showed clips of him playing football. Then it would show clips of him in the news. I think okay. it was quite a traditional documentary style, um, but it was it was very beautifully. Uh, each shot was beautifully picked, and it went over a lot of key issues that I didn't know about such as the uh, the World Cup and, and the inner turmoil of the of the Neapolitans having to choose between Italy and Argentina and I think it showed it from a good way of showing it from his perspective from his friends perspective his fans perspective and the public's perspective all giving it uh, different views and the Italian people they may be outside of Napoli who hated his guts um, and I think that with Wayne Rooney you're looking at a really nuanced character who maybe is the most stereotypically and well known English football of the last kind of however many years you know I think he's one of those people that people that don't like football know who Wayne Rooney is you know kind of the Ronaldo level and um, I think as he's had a lot of controversy in his career and you know as someone that maybe doesn't is a fan of a team that um, is not a, the, the, a fan of a team that would that hates the team that he plays for uh, I've always had a kind of uh, prejudice against the character but I think if we're looking at a documentary that's done in the same way to the Maradona where it can show um, a real narrative a, a real look at the character rather than just following his life um, I think we could be looking forward to a, a really excellent documentary about a sport that my myself and I know you do as well JL uh, love so no, it sounds good it sounds good I remember because I remember seeing the the Man City documentary, the Amazon one, and yeah. that was it was still a documentary, but it had this kind of I don't know the way it was presented wasn't like a typical documentary. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but there was um, no, have, you, have you seen it? No, I have not. Okay, well, because there was a lot of criticism leveled at it because it seemed to kind of it was one of the reasons why I liked it but why people seemed to criticise it was that it wasn't a straight up documentary it kind of seemed to sort of romanticise almost or like kind of glorify like ego boost almost mm. um, which was a, a criticism that a lot of people levelled at it especially like non, non-City fans but I, th- I think I mean it's kind of hard for me to judge it because I'm a City fan mm-hmm. but I think I don't know maybe give it a watch or at least I don't know some parts of it or just maybe an episode or something just to see what you think because um that was like a really interesting way of of presenting it like it was a documentary it kind of it, it documented the season and what happened behind the scenes and had interviews with players and coaches and stuff and had clips from games like you mentioned of of the actual like footage of the football and stuff but it mm-hmm. it kind of had this I don't know. It was, it was it was interesting. It was a different take on a documentary that I like. I, I quite liked. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I would suggest maybe just watching like 
a part of it or something and just seeing what you think because it was it was a documentary but it was a bit a bit more filmic in a way mm-hmm. okay moving on to uh, to your last piece of news JL. yeah so this is news that uh, a lost film from George Romero the iconic um, legend in the world of horror and zombies and stuff <laughs> King of Zombies. King of Zombies, yeah. Who famously doesn't like The Walking... Or didn't like The Walking Dead because of its portrayal of zombies and stuff. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, yeah, so Lost Film from Romero, 1973, called The Amusement Park. Uh, is close to getting... Well, closer than ever to getting released. Um, so, interesting news. Obviously, quite old now, 73, not been released. It's currently apparently going around the festival circuits and stuff, trying to get picked up. Um, but it seems like it could eventually, or finally, um, see have audiences see it. Uh, it stars Lincoln Marzel as an elderly man who finds himself disoriented and increasingly isolated as the pains, tragedies, and humiliations of aging in America are illustrated by his journey among roller coasters and chaotic crowds. So apparently, it's not like explicitly a horror film. It's kind of more like a, I don't know surrealistic mm-hmm. um maybe like a psychological thriller kind of thing like not explicitly horror but has the implications and the thematic elements that you can apply and one of the articles i was reading actually talked about how it's if not um you know if not a horror film it could, it's at least very relevant to um and still relevant today to american society in particular um so yeah, it's quite interesting. Obviously, Romero. I don't think I don't. I'm not sure I've seen any of his films. You know, I don't think I've seen the the Living Dead, um, the films. You know, I don't think I've seen any of them. But I know I know what they're about, and I know that even through those, they have these like socio political narratives about like consumerism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this seems to be in a kind of similar vein, um, but maybe a bit more personal and a bit more about kind of um like about aging and stuff like that as it as it mentioned so interesting uh interesting bit of news because obviously there's also the news this week that uh some of hitchcock's work is going to be get a release on 4k i think vertigo the birds psycho and there's maybe one other one i saw which they were um talking about having released on 4k so there's a lot of even though there's a lot of new films that are being delayed and new stuff that's coming out, there's uh, some old stuff that's getting restored and some old stuff that's getting shown in cinemas as well. So, um, yeah, interesting as well. And obviously there's, as as well as the 4K release of Hitchcock's work, there's also news this week of A24 releasing Midsummer director's cut with a Scorsese foreword. <laughs> um, really? Which is going to have some artwork and some, like, background some kind of materials but it's going to be a four the f- i think it's the first 4k blu-ray from a24 and it's going to cost 45 dollars which is a pretty yikes penny. man yeah wow that is uh quite a lot for uh i think that's all that like, steel books and stuff there's so much uh like you know when you're talking about those you get those steel books that, that they a lot of them cost ridiculous amounts of money just because of the uh fancy packaging but mm-hmm. whether the uh the additional material is truly worth the like 25 quid extra we'll have to see yeah but yeah, but yeah. a lot of interesting news the idea of getting some uh some content that we've never seen before from 1973 uh is is completely yeah. very intriguing and um 
And Hitchcock, you know, I I, uh, I don't think you've ever seen Psycho, have you? No, I've not seen... Have I seen Hitchcock? I must have seen Hitchcock. I've seen some. There's so many, as I said, there's so many classic films I've not seen. I think I've seen a couple, if maybe not one. I've seen bits of Vertigo. Um, what, have I not, what have I seen? I've seen one of his films. Go watch Psycho. Go Stop the podcast, go watch Psycho now. No, what have I seen? I've seen one of his films, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I've, yeah, the really late, I've seen I've seen The Lady Vanishes. Oh, okay. From 1938, which was good. Nice stuff. Okay, so moving on to our last piece of news and the best piece of news. Uh, it came out last week, um, about the same time we recorded, so I missed it uh, last week's podcast. But this is probably the best news we've had for months, which is uh, Netflix have confirmed that. On their, they're confirmed on the 20th anniversary of the original being released that they are going to be making a Chicken Run sequel coming straight to Netflix. Ardman's making it, production starting next year. I absolutely adore Chicken Run. What a film, eh? What a f- I'm sh- please don't say you've missed this one. Please no, say no, you've I've seen, seen Chicken, Chicken Run. Run, don't worry. What a film, eh? Great eh? film. <sighs> you know what I've not seen? Um, it came out last year or the year before. Is it called The First Man or something? Oh, yeah, I haven't seen that either. Which was by the same company, right? The same studio? Yeah, Ardman, yeah. Yeah, but so they... So, okay. The thing that I'm worried about here is Chicken Run is such a good classic film. How do you follow up? Yeah, and not even just that, is that I'm worried... I was. It, it's, a, it's the same concern I had when they announced Incredibles 2, is that I loved the original so much... And I was so so worried they were gonna like just ruin the the first film, like tarnish it with a sequel that wasn't as good. And I didn't particularly like the sequel. It wasn't bad. I just didn't. I didn't like it like so well, much. It it was good. Well, it was good. It wasn't. To- it wasn't anything special though. And I'm kind of worried that the same thing will happen with this. Although I don't know. We'll have to see because obviously it's still the same studio, Netflix produced. So Netflix has done some pretty good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well I'd dis- say I felt the same concern with Toy Story three and Toy Story four when they were both announced, and they were both excellent. Arguably the best, the best. Well, see, that's I the know. thing as well is that Toy Story for me is one of the franchises where, at least in my opinion, the film every film is better than the last. And I had the same concern, not necessarily with Toy Story three, because. I didn't. I don't know. I don't know what it was with Toy Story, but I didn't, I didn't have the same feelings about Toy Story three. But Toy Story four, I think I had the same reactions to that as to that when they announced Toy Story four because I was kind of like, they kind of implied that Toy Story three was the end of the series and at the end of the journey. The characters kind of had like a nice yeah. moment in Toy Story three. <laughs> they kind of felt like a nice conclusion. So when they announced yeah. Toy Story four, I was a bit concerned. But you know that was that was my favorite of the four. Um, exactly. So. so it- it yeah, could be I'm, the same situation. With, yeah, it could be the same. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, seeing that. I will watch it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm just, fingers crossed that they do it justice because the original was so good. Nice. Okay, so that wraps up this new section, unless there's anything else you can think of. Uh, I don't think so. No. Okay, so that's everything. And we're going to go on to the features of the, the main focus of the episode. It is Goodfellas and Get Out. Two uh, Academy Award winning films. We're starting off with the earliest chronologically with Goodfellas, uh, 1990 crime film, uh, kind of one of the uh, most iconic films in the gangster genre, directed by Martin Scorsese and featuring an absolutely excellent cast of Ray Liotta, 
Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. Uh, I it's one of my favorite films. It, it's up there uh, for me, and and it has been since I first watched it. And Jordan had never seen it, so I recommend it to him as he did to me with Get Out. So you've watched it for the first time, and please, you know, you've already alluded in the Pulp Fiction review that you actually didn't think it was a good Pulp Fiction, which to me is fair enough because I love Pulp Fiction, but. What's your thoughts on uh, on Goodfellas, JL? Yeah, so it was interesting because gangster films typically I haven't... Like, I've not seen the Godfather films, for instance. I've only seen um, enough of Scarface to piece together what happens and stuff like that. I've never sat down, like as I said, I've, with many films, I've never sat down and watched them from start to finish. Um, so they're not films I've typically watched... Um, but th- that doesn't mean necessarily that the, the films I don't enjoy, I, the films I have seen, I you know I have enjoyed. Um, Goodfellas was was good. I liked it. It was interesting. Um, so from Scorsese, I've only seen I've seen Taxi Driver and The Wolf of Wall Street, um, which I have to say I did enjoy more than Goodfellas. To be honest, um, I think I mentioned I mentioned this last week as well with when we talked about the Marvel films and how personal some of them felt and how um you know how that how that can contribute to to, to my perception of, of the film. I think obviously Goodfellas has that kind of personal quality to it. Um Ray Liotta is really really good um in the role and you know he arguably was not even you know not being nominated for the Academy Awards I don't think. You know, it's just a bit of a, a bit of a joke, really, to be honest, because he was so good in that film. Obviously, Joe Pesci won um won the for best supporting actor, which was fully deserved. The cast mm-hmm. was really good, and direction was really good. Cinematography was really good. There was like so many cool like moments. There's obviously like the one shot take from walking into the the restaurant, yeah, which yeah. everyone talks about. But it was one of the moments where I didn't realize how many people talked about it until like. I'd watched the film. I noticed. I noticed it in the film. I was like, okay, that's cool. Then I googled like I was like, just just feeling a bit of reading up after the after I'd watched it, and so many people talking about that. I didn't realize how big and iconic that scene was. Um, obviously, there's so many like really cool like one-liners and really well-written dialogue and this kind of construction of the like gangster lifestyle. Um, and what I quite liked about Goodfellas was that he didn't necessarily romanticize it it kind of it romanticized mm. it for the characters like obviously the end like uh Ray Liotta's character is um you know he kind of looks back on it fondly and wishes that he was kind of still part of that lifestyle when he goes into um obviously no spoilers for this because it's 1990 but um by the end of the film goes into the um witness protection and but you kind of get a sense that he's kind of missing it and longing for that kind of going back to that lifestyle because you compare that to his earlier moments in prison where he despite being in prison is kind of still reveling in in um in the corruption and, and the crime and stuff and it's kind of this moment of like he's free but he's also not free he kind of he was more free in prison than when he's in a witness protection program which is kind of like an ironic thing i really like mm-hmm. that kind of aspect to it and with goodfellas i'm not sure if you've seen city of god um no. but i Kind, it, I kind of drew parallels to City of God as well. This kind of cyclical, um, you know, coming of age almost in like a crime, in like a crime setting. Um, this kind of cyclical mm-hmm. nature of of young, typically you know men, um, growing up, 
surrounded by uh, what becomes their family uh, through through like crime and um, like you know uh, in this kind of environment. It was and that and that kind of I, I drew on City of God a lot when I was watching it. There was like a lot of comparisons I was making between characters and things, and you know Goodfellas. There was like so many like moments in that. There's obviously the ending, there's the restaurant scene, there's like a the diner scene with De Niro. Um which was really, really good. De Niro was great in this. Like the whole cast was good. There was just like I don't know what it was, there was just something missing. Like there was all these elements and I really enjoyed it and the way it was constructed. I particularly really liked the um the fact that it opens with a scene that, you know, we don't find out um the the context of and the consequences of until much later in the film. Um, I thought that was a really, really cool like way to introduce us into the world. Then they have like the flashbacks to his youth, um, with like the I don't know what it was. It was like it was like a camera flash, but like it had like freeze frames. So it had these like um as I said, it was like from like in terms of like the Godfather, which I've not seen, but I know a lot of people talk about how it kind of romanticizes the like the lifestyle. Um this kind of romanticizes it, but in like more of like a personal way, like it's like a flashback for him almost, like looking back on his childhood. Mm-hmm. And it had this like gunshot sound effect whenever it had like a capture of the flash, which is one of the parallels I drew with City of God because in City of God, which is set in Brazil, one of the characters manages to escape from the violence in the favela, but only manages to do so by using his camera to take photos of the violence. And he gets a job in like a, in like a newspaper um, company but he man- he only manages to escape from uh from the violence by using the violence and mm-hmm. in his own way he doesn't become violent but he uses the violence in his own way and it kind of I'd kind of drew parallels with that in a in a way with the photography like the camera flash um moments for like the freeze frames and like the the flashbacks for for the character it was it was it was good it was just something missing i don't know what it was like it was really good i enjoyed it it wasn't like i I'm not like it wasn't a bad film like I really did like the film there was just I don't know how to describe it there was just some kind of piece missing there whereas when I compare it to the other films I've seen from Scorsese which is Taxi Driver and The Wolf of Wall Street I guess it is just that kind of more per even though it is so personal but there's just something about those films for me which I much I not not much prefer because I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna end up giving Goodfellas maybe a four like four four and a half like around that area um taxi driver i think i've got as a four and a half and wolf of wall street i originally had a four and a half and then moved up to a five because i just realized how much i loved that film i don't know what it is there's just something about those those films which elevate them above for me um yeah i don't know what i don't know what you think i don't know if you i think you've seen those other films as well i don't know how you think they compare um but yeah, also the music in Goodfellas was really good as well. But what what do you what do you think of of Goodfellas? And obviously, if you've seen those other two films I've seen, how do you think they compare as well? well I haven't seen Taxi Driver, um, to okay. be honest. But um, I think that um, all the stuff since uh, I think, for example, especially I think the better comparison will be something like The Irishman, where it's kind of such a callback to to this. And I think yeah. you know Scorsese has made his, I've his not money seen that either, but yeah. of of going back to these uh, to, to what he's good at and I think that throughout his career uh, personally I would say that you know he's trying to capture this vibe of you know uh, that kind of 
that time, the kind of the pinnacle of, of the mafia, the, the mob movement. And I think that all the times he tries to do it and all the times that De Niro, you know, all, De Niro's in so many of these kind of similar films. Yeah. Um, Pesci, the same thing. Obviously, Lesso Radio has been in a more varied uh, set of films. But, but with the first two, with Pesci, De Niro and, and Scorsese, I think they've, they've kind of done a lot of very similar films throughout their career. But I think... Um, this is the time when it's in 1990. I think this is the time where he, where Scorsese is at his best, and those two find their feet in the in the best way they they can. They find not not find their feet, but I think it is a perfect uh, time where all of them are at the peak of their game, and I think it creates the best thing that any of them individually have done. Uh, I think um, it's the archetypal you know gangster film in that within uh, it's not like an anthology like uh, the godfather but within however many minutes it is and within about 150 minutes it manages to condense these decades well it doesn't ever feel like you're jumping too quickly it doesn't even ever feel like you're stalling somewhere too long it quickly jumps through the years and shows you through the eyes of one person the rises and the falls and okay yeah i actually think it does romanticize at times the lifestyle but not in an unrealistic way there are definitely things positive things that come from the money and the power that come uh, in that lifestyle but there are also dramatic falls that are experienced in the film as well so I don't think that any romanticization is not matched with some realistic uh, negatives that are brought on by uh, that kind of lifestyle um, and I think that it's does such a good job of presenting each character and you really have um, these everybody comes to the same conclusions about the characters. I feel like everybody uh, knows where they stand with with uh, Joe Pesci's character, who's this kind of like he kind of he's funny, but he's kind of a dickhead, and everybody knows he's a dickhead, and, and you kind of have to you know you know yeah. that you have to kind of stand stand back from him a little, and and you get this real. Um, sense of you really back the main character you really back Radio's character uh, Henry Hill um, which of the film actually lists you know everything lists Rob De Niro as the main character and he's the front of the poster and all that stuff but I think that is purely due to stardom I think it'd be ridiculous to claim anyone other than uh, Henry Hill Radio's character is the actual main character in the film yeah I was just going to say as well that Scorsese does a really good job of making you root for the inverted commas bad guy like Wolf yeah. of Wall Street and Taxi Driver obviously all of his characters have this kind of um, kind of I don't want it's like this charm almost that you end up just through their interactions with other characters and their dialogue and their actions and like you know their actions that they they do they're not necessarily born out of anything other than just you know if you're having Goodfellas it's kind of this adopted family almost as I mentioned earlier he kind of grows into um, mm. and wanting to get a job and stuff and just be part of something that's you know, like that's that's the, the initial motivation, at least for for Henry Hill. I think with, like with also, there's that moment in Goodfellas where someone calls out like the Wall Street um, brokers, which I yeah. thought was like a really sort of obviously yeah. it's Funny not like a callback, in- but you know what I mean. Like yeah. with Wolf of Wall Street, there's this. I don't know about that, whether that plays into anything, but it's just interesting because so it's kind of futurely self-referential. Yeah, yeah. It's a, but it's just it's interesting a foreshadowing kind of, on a massive scale. Yeah, you kind of end up rooting for for these characters even though you know that they're mm-hmm. not necessarily good people. Um, and I think that's what Scorsese does really well is yes. is establishing you know, he never he never cl- like for his films never seems to claim like, oh, this is right or this is good. He just presents it as is and just gives you 
Um, but he, he also, by doing that, he also allows you to understand and kind of, um, like, you get this sense of, because he's not saying anything, he's not, he's not presenting these as, like, um, as, as the good guys, whatever, but he, he just kind of presents them as they are, but by doing that, I think what he does really well is you understand why Henry Hill, from a young age, does look up to these people and respect them and wants to become part of this group because you understand that, as you mentioned, Joe Pesci's character, um, I've forgotten the character's name. Is it Tommy or something? Tommy, yeah. Tommy. Yeah. Um, you know, he's like this scumbag guy who ever knows he's a bit of a dick but still really really respects and like has fun with and he's a funny character and you have obviously that moment uh at one point in the film where henry hill calls him like funny and he kind of mm-hmm. he like so iconic that moment yeah he presents this like you know he's so like intimidating and then instantly becomes like this com- comedic character and do you understand why he's like so He's so, like, evil, but so, like, charming in a way, and you understand yeah. why the people around him have respect for him and why they um, want to be, like, associated with him and whatever, because... And I think that's what's, like, what's so great about that film um, in particular, because you get this sense that, you know, people... Like, Scorsese doesn't go, oh, this is a great guy, but you understand why people become like affiliated with him it's um you know you say about um liking the bad guy and stuff and and i agree you know i think one of the ways that he does that is um he doesn't throw the main character uh henry he doesn't throw him in at the deep end every single action is justifiable by the last and he kind Mm. of just becomes slightly worse and slightly worse until it's only towards the end of the film when he's he's shagging multiple birds and he's getting caught by the law and all that stuff it's only then when you kind of the audience pulls yourself back and you you kind of this moment of uh, self-reflection where you realize wait this guy's actually a dickhead i think what i think what Scorsese does so well is that he pushes everybody he pushes the audience everybody that watches it gets pushed into almost the exact same opinion of their own accord he makes it so that everybody feels like they've come to their own conclusion about how these characters are and who they like and who they don't like but really it's all through manipulation of of the characters it's like it's a ridiculous comparison to make between goodfellas but i'm going to go to game of thrones um where if you look at game of thrones for example uh, you've got this massive cast of characters and i'm pretty sure that you know i haven't seen the latest series i'm up to about series five on game of thrones but i know later on you know you had a lot of, of battles between people um, about who they wanted to win and who they liked more and you had people rooting for each house and all that stuff um ridiculous comparison to, to make to good fairs i know but everybody ends up with their own opinions on who they like and who they don't like through watching the same film whereas Scorsese does such a good job of making everybody feel the same way about people of your own accord. You know, I come to the same conclusion about rooting for the main character as you did and liking this character and thinking this character was a dickhead and thinking this character was justifiable, this character wasn't. Um, all through watching the same film, all, all of our own accord, doesn't matter how different a person you are, it does a really good job that 99% of the people agree with each other uh, and, and you don't feel like you're being duped into it. Yeah, for sure. And just like character construction as well because um as well the, the thing with this film as well is that like obviously it's based on characters from um like it's based wise on guy. A, say again sorry the book's called wise guy 
Yeah, it's based on the book, which is based on the accounts of Hill as like an informant and stuff. And yeah. But what what I really liked as well about it was that it never it never felt like Scorsese was trying to like defend these people, but he's just kind of presenting like their justifications, their motivations, why they've done what they've done, and this kind of idea of um, I don't know, just this kind of trueness to it. Where he didn't, he never, even though it's like based on a thing, and it does say based on a true story right at the start, you never. You never get the sense that, like, yeah, I don't describe it. it. It kind of just feels natural, almost. Like, even though it just feels like it progresses in like the way it should, and like the way that he presents the story is just in the, like this. Obviously, you got the flashbacks and stuff. You kind of get that sense of um, of him looking back to his like childhood and his motivations and stuff, and then. He just kind of presents this story to us and then just says, okay, here's what here's what happened and I'm not going to take necessarily take a side on what happens, but this is these are the characters. These are the ways they interacted. These are the their like reasons for doing it. This is what happens as a result. These are the consequences. Um, and it's just a kind of nice like sort of moment like mon- captures this montage as you said of like the of like the era. I think um I think it does. Uh, I think with the main character once again, I just go out. I think it does uh, present a quite good message that good people do bad things because you know from the start he's not a bad guy. You know he isn't actually a bad guy. Uh, it's just that the situation has presented him with with this. You know I think he's inherently not a bad human being. He just ends yeah, up on the path. There's also some really nice like creative choices that I quite liked. There's um, there's the moment in the the diner at the end with De Niro and um and Henry Hill. Uh Jim is it Jimmy and uh and Henry. And when he realizes obviously that he's gonna get like he's gonna get got kind of thing. And there's that like moment where the, the with like the dolly zoom with the background. Mm-hmm. Um and like there's this, there's like subtle things like that in the film which are really, really cool because I feel like Scorsese isn't necessarily a really flashy um, filmmaker in a sense like you know he doesn't have these grand epic like thi- like moments necessarily or he doesn't have these um, like his cinematography is really really like subtle and I really like it because it kind of just presents the events as they are he doesn't like glorify anything it doesn't like diminish anything it just presents the events in a natural way um, but then you have these little like sort of moments thrown in you have that moment with the the dolly zoom which kind of adds this like tension to the scene then you have um there's a moment near the end where they're in the courtroom and then henry hill just gets up and walks through the courtroom um yeah. and there's just like moments like that where it's just a real it's like it's a change to the style and it's like you notice it and you just kind of it kind of makes you think a bit more because it's not like every scene isn't this grand epic like you know you compare like the cinematography of this to something like, I don't know, Mad Max Fury Road or whatever, where it's a completely different story, obviously. But the cinematography is just so, like, true and, like, natural, and it just kind of presents, like, the the story in, like, a really natural way. It's like The Wolf of Wall Street as well, as I mentioned earlier. Um, also, just on, just on the side, do you know... Have you seen The Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a moment in, in 
when I was watching Goodfellas, it was like halfway into the... came out, so it's quite a while ago, to be honest. I can't remember very well. Yeah, so th- but there was a moment in, in Goodfellas, like halfway through, where Ray Liotta was speaking, and he said something, and I thought, that guy sounds really familiar. And I know I've seen him in a couple of films. I've seen him in like Identity and stuff, but none of his like really, really other ma- major stuff. But I was like, this guy, it, it's not like I recognise his voice. It's like he sounds like somebody else. And I couldn't yeah. place what it was. And it was like this one specific line that really, really sounded like someone else. And I was like, that sounds like someone else. And then I realised it sounded like, I just typed in, Ray Liotta sounds like, and the first or second result on Google was Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. And from that moment, I just pictured Jordan Belfort. <laughs> because I just, it, it just, the, just, they just sounded so similar, like in certain moments. Mm. Like, but anyway, that's just a completely different aside. But um, yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street. There's like these, obviously. I don't know. That film for me was was better, but I don't know. If that's just because I enjoyed it more. Like it was more entertaining. Like mm. maybe the humor translates a bit better. Cause it's more modern, and maybe I'm just more used to the actors that are in that film, so I kind of associate with them a bit more. Um, but what I liked about the Wolf of Wall Street and Goodfellas was, like I said before, these, you know, awful people who do terrible crimes and stuff, but you still kind of end up rooting for them in, in the way that they're, that they're presented to you. Um, and, yeah, these kind of moments of comedy, but also of, like, really, really dark, you know, gritty, like, underworld kind of moments as well. Mm-hmm. Scorsese's really uh, king of the anti-hero. Yeah. So I think that wraps it all up. So you said that uh, you'd give it well, eight, eight out of ten. We go out of the out of ten I scale. Think, I, th- I think we'll go for. Uh, I mean, if it's out of ten, and I could give it any score, like this is this is we've discussed this many times, but the the, the star system just doesn't account for yeah. enough variation. Mm-hmm. I agree. Like you, you you either give it a full if you just go down the four star route and only give it four or five, then you have to be more cutthroat. But maybe that's easier in a way because you have to be cutthroat if you go down like out of 10 root or whatever but the half stars just makes it so more much more complicated because you have to account for so you much can give it, you can give it an 8.5 if you like it's I was going to say I was going to say if it was out of 10 I would give it an 8.5 okay nice okay that's um, I'm happy that you liked it uh, it's a shame you don't like it as much as I liked it uh, on, on there but I've got it as a 5 star so I might give it closer to a 10 out of 10 or a 9.5 out of 10 but you know, uh, at least you appreciate it. And and uh, moving on, we're going to go to the next film. We're going to go to the last film, going to the 2017 horror film Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele, starring Daniel Kaluuya, Alison Williams, and a whole bunch of other uh, very good actors that I'll get onto um, later. <laughs> and um, much like Goodfellas, probably deserved more Oscars than it won. It won one. It was nominated for four. Um, I believe that Jordan Peele was the first black person to win uh, uh, best screenplay at the Oscars Um, and so this film came out in 2017 I did not see it I did not see it until now I I have had it on my watch list for a long time it used to be on Netflix it no longer is Um, so you have to buy it for Amazon uh, whatever Um, whereas Goodfellas is on Netflix and uh, so you can get to that crazy but um I'm going, to, I'm going to the review, but I want to quickly talk about the uh, the star system as well because I felt that the star system was particularly applicable uh, with, with Get Out because it's film recommended from you to me um, and you have it uh, as one of your top four on, on the website Letterboxd uh, with a five star out of yep. five. And when watching the film, um, I completely understand the five out of five because... 
it's like what come what what do you define as a five out of five? You know, because I think a five out of five is almost different to a ten out of ten because a ten out of ten implies perfection. Yeah. Because of the lack of a five out of, of of half stars, you know, like there is obviously half stars, but there's not quarter or whatever. Uh, I think a five star means kind of as good as it can be, as good as you think it could be. And I think that Get Out is very clearly got a lot of uh, characters to five star because it, the question is what could you improve? Um, and I'll get on to, to my, the negative parts in a bit, but to first to, to gush about the film, and, and I will do this for a lot of films. Maybe you think, oh, you know, I'm so over the top positive. It just happens that we're going to be recommending the heart of the best films ever. You know, Blade Runner we did last week, um, and, and then Get Out and Good Fellas this week. I'm not, I am positive about films. I probably am a bit more positive than most people. You could tell that from me giving um, Dark Phoenix an 8 out of 10 earlier, but. <laughs> Obviously, that was maybe a bit of an outlier, but a lot of these films I will be giving really high uh, ratings, but that's just because we're doing the best films of all time right now. Um, and so maybe you're getting a bit bogged down in me constantly giving high scores, but when it comes to Get Out, um, I can clearly see the 5 out of 5 because when you're talking about the acting, you're talking about an awful lot of actors uh, involved in the film, um, but almost all of them produce almost perfect performances. When you're talking about, obviously the standout would be uh, Kaluuya, um, the the main character, he, he plays Chris. Sure, yeah. um, but then you also just looking past him, you, you think his girlfriend Alison Williams, she's she's absolutely excellent, portrays this this character. And, and I'm gonna say spoilers. I probably shouldn't because it's only come out in 2017, which is the same time as Blade Runner. Just a spoiler but... alert. It's fine. You know what? Spoiler alert is now. Okay. I, 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 you know what? If you go watch it, if you ain't seen it, go watch it. I'm yeah. gonna give spoilers. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, that, that Alison Woodland does a really good job of showing um, within her performance how quickly she snaps from this lovable, you know, you really back her and she's really nice and then suddenly she's this kind of demented and she's this cold, glazed eyes when she's sitting upstairs looking at the, the NBA players and, and drinking her milk. You know, she, she provides this really uh, chilling performance towards the end and past that you know you look at Lil Ray Howery playing Rod who had uh, maybe didn't come into the film as much until the end but was really really showed his passion showed uh, a really relatable likeable realistic character and almost all the members of the Armitage family Bradley Whitford playing Dean Armitage really really good uh, I think the uh, I can't remember the actor's name but the person that played Andre Hayworth um, was, was excellent I think it's just really when you're looking at performances you know it it's rare, almost like Goodfellas, where you can really, really hard to find um, a name amongst a long list that had a bad performance. Because it's just like everybody here was at the peak, uh, really, and, and provided a, a really realistic set of personalities. Whilst it was an outlandish, uh, thrillerish, got some elements of sci-fi amongst the plot. It created a real family. Uh, it really felt like you knew these people. These are like people you know. And um, to see the, uh, how quickly Kaluuya has come up um, from, I remember when I was young, watching him playing Parking Pataweo in Harry Enfield's sketch show, to now him being uh, the lead character in this, which did immensely well and was very, very well praised, and in being in uh, a big mainstream film like Black Panther, and being in one of my films I think didn't receive enough praise last year, Queen and Slim, which I was a, a massive fan of, I think he was the highlight of that as well. Um, to see him come up so quickly, so impressive, 
and and I think that's another thing for that five because how do you improve upon these these performances? You can't. When it comes to the uh, cinematography, I thought it did really good at showing these visual cues. I think it looked really really good. These long establishing shots in the house, these, this way that it, the the cinematography really created the creepiness around the uh, around the family, whereas the plot was maybe trying to portray them as uh, you know it's comfortable and it's fine and they're all these like lovely people. The the cinematography managed to maybe show the uh, the undertones of the reality and I think when it comes to visual effects with uh, the sunken place again 5 out of 5 excellent it's like it, it, it's very a film where I can very much understand the 5 out of 5 because it's just so it does what it wants to do so well um, and I'm not one to complain about uh, things being uh, ideologies being forced on you. Uh, maybe that's biased because I haven't got a problem with a lot of the ideologies that are being forced upon us in in modern media. But uh, a lot of people seem to have the issue. Uh, if just looking down, uh, if you look by rate by um, by lowest first on reviews on IMDb and and Letterbox, and you'll see an awful lot of of angry racists. Uh, but there is this legitimate critic, constructive criticism. I'm not pretending that people that don't like the film are racist. There is a lot of it that is just racism on those reviews. Um, but I, uh, I'm not one to complain about things being shoved down the throat. But even if I was, this film does not uh, do that uh, at all. It does a really good job of a, a kind of hour and a half, uh, hour 45 film about um, racial stereotyping, about um, about racism, uh, really, you know, in the simplest way I put it. It's a, a film about racism in a lot of ways, yet it doesn't at any point feel like it's forced upon you. It feels like it's done through relatable um characters through uh, real uh, feelings that the, the the two main black characters of, of Chris and um, his friend uh, Rod would actually go through um, and and it, 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 whilst it has these the, again these almost sci-fi-ish um, twists it at no point feels unrealistic um, it, it's all you know every character reacts in the way that you'd uh, do it in real life and it has science this kind of pseudo-scientific uh, backing um, so I, I think there's, there's so many positives to say about the film um, you know I thought <laughs> you set it up now for you to go uh, I'm going to give it a two star <laughs> but there are negatives to the film obviously um one of the things that I think that um, I, I would say, if I have to say negatives, this is nitpicking. This is nitpicking. It's an excellent film, and and I thought it did what it, what it wanted to do really well. I was completely surprised by the plot twists. Um, you know, it, it always felt like it was going one way and managed to take you down a, a different route. Um, but I felt that maybe the the biggest downfall of the film was that it was presented as a horror film, but it wasn't very scary. Um, I think that that was the, the main thing, is that it was way more of a psychological thriller, but the trailer and the reaction and the uh, director, everything seemed sure. to point towards being a horror, um, and it definitely felt like it was going that way a lot of times, but never really scared you too much. I um, yeah, I think... I think one of the things that makes it so scary, though, as you mentioned, is that so much of it is so believable and you have yeah. these really casual like moments of like casual racism and like discrimination and prejudice that kind of get borne out through dialogue and character action and for me that's what makes the film so scary is that these moments even though they're presented in a Hollywood massive film feel so real and like believable like the, mm -hmm. some of the dialogue that just feels like it's so you could just imagine someone saying it like just and genuinely meaning it 
unlike it being in the film it just feels so scary that that could happen that, that that's the case mm-hmm. i i see your point and i think it it definitely um comes across as as believable but yeah. it always felt like at times with the music and the cinematography and as I said the the, the the stuff that isn't within the film itself such as you know being called a horror film meant that I expected yeah. it to build up to a much higher crescendo I expect almost expected there to be this big yeah. horror like something like you know sure. you really didn't expect and it never really came uh, maybe I... that was a conscious decision for him to escape before it got that bad but yeah, got well, out I... One of the notes, because I, I didn't actually re-watch this film before the pod, but I've seen it f- recently enough to remember sort of the main things I wanted to mention mm-hmm. to you, because obviously you've not seen it. And having heard what you thought, some of the things I wanted to just make a note of in case, you know, just to just to chat, have a chat with you about. Because one of... Obviously, horror is a very strange genre, because mm-hmm. it's not... Cl- like there's so much remit and so much scope for directors to to play with because you can go down like a sci-fi horror route like Alien or something like that where the horror is kind of grounded in some kind of sci-fi extraterrestrial setting and that works because you already have the suspension of disbelief right so you you already accept that there's these aliens whatever yeah um but then you've got like supernatural horror films, which to me aren't particularly interesting because there's no plausible that it is kind of this kind of pointless exercise of let's just scare our audience because we want to, and because it's a horror film we have to. But there's no real cause. So if you look at something like I don't know, I can't think of an example specifically, but you know, just these films that kind of come out where it's like Paranormal Activity or I don't know Annabelle, where some doll gets possessed or Chucky or whatever. Or like just just anything where it's kind of like there's some supernatural explanation where a ghost inhabits someone or there's a spirit or someone died and came back to life or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like there's those to me aren't particularly interesting generally because they they just have some kind of contrived explanation as to why it's scary and to me this the horror doesn't have any particular meaning it's just a horror film so it's scary um Mm -hmm. whereas something like alien which i've not seen but i know from um people having talked about like friends and stuff is is more of an interesting film because it's you already have that suspension of disbelief you already um you're already grounded in this setting and there's not really kind of any like, I don't know, supernatural horror to me just is just not interesting because it it's just why like that to me there's no not much point with, with Get Out. What I thought was interesting was you have you do have this kind of bizarre sci fi esque supernatural not supernatural but kind of you know what I mean the bizarre twist with the the sunken place and the bodies and. But to, that's more interesting for me because it is kind of it's steeped in this social, political, um, like cultural, like allegory, allegorical meaning. You have this context, and that's what that's why it, it it then becomes scary from that re like for that reason. There's not just like if it was if it was just plain straight up body snatching, I don't think it would have it would be very interesting. Mm. 
but it is grounded in the wider context and as you said the meaning of it that it's trying to present which is why I thought it was was more interesting I um I think that uh, one of the horror tropes that it did um did did so well one of the kind of horror-y um aspects of the film that I thought uh, was particularly strong was it kept taking characters that uh made you trust them and then rip that trust away in a very um yeah. believe in like you kept falling for the same problem over and over so at the end of the film uh you like rod and you like chris arguably there's no one else in the entire film that you like you know it's that within scenes you change trusts like for example mm-hmm. when rod is in the police station at first she's listening and then you think that someone's going to help him by the end she laughs at him so that removes trust within a scene or over a long film you know if you think about it um if you're going through the film again this is intense spoilers for anyone that hasn't seen it but um it, 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 as it kind of goes on you it's him and his girlfriend you trust the girlfriend you trust the girlfriend's friend um sorry you've trusted his friend rod and then you go to the family and they're all quite chill at first and he keeps on going about how he isn't racist he isn't racist vote for obama again yeah. all that stuff um and there's loads of really really nice subtle visual cues throughout that and things that he says and, and the camera moving and him talking about you know um a black mold and him talking about yeah. things all that stuff there's, there's loads of little kind of metaphors in it and, and the way that he talks there's and stuff. so many of those like yeah sort of foreshadowing moments and like yeah references did like there's, the there's so much thing. that i love about that that's one of the reasons why i love the film because there are these moments throughout where when you re-watch the film it's like i mentioned with knives out last week yeah, yeah when you know what happens and you watch it back there's like certain moments like the id scene when he gets id'd by the police officer yeah um and his girlfriend's like why and then you obviously realize later on that yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's because, because she doesn't uh, know he's, there. has been people going missing. Um, there's like the of oh, one of just the dialogue, the way that some of it is is presented just so casually, and you don't even think about it. And then later on, you kind of go, "Hang on a minute, what?" There's like the moment yeah. where the dad, the, uh, Dean Armitage, she says, "Um, oh, we hired um Gina, and I've forgotten the guy's name." They oh ha- yeah, they hired them yeah, to look after yeah. the parents, and then yeah, when the parents true, died, they couldn't that. bear to yeah. let them go. And it's like you, there's just the dialogue is just so cleverly done, like like yeah. that. Um, I just I just loved it. But yeah, as I was saying with the, with the trust, you know, you, when he's doing through there with the family, like he, he there does a really really like he constantly tries to make sure that you know he's not racist. So. Mm-hmm. You know, you start trusting the girlfriend, then you trust the, you, you trust you don't trust him at first, but then you, tr- you learn to trust the parents, except for the brother who's a little bit of the dodgy one. You kind yeah. of can tell that from then, and then you know you, you introduce all these kind of the people that you don't that you you know these freaks, these these white people with with the with that are kind of obsessing about the, the black boyfriend yeah. and, and all that stuff, and, and you don't trust them, but then you find this Jim Hudson character, the person without the eyes, the the the, the blind um, the blind bloke who yeah. you actually trust. You think that he's going to be the good guy, and he's For like sure. really nice, and you have that trust, and then boom, the family lose it. You lose trust in the family. Then you, you she finds the pictures. You lose trust in the girlfriend. Then it turns out that Jim Hudson's the one that wants to buy him. You lose trust in him. It's like he's so he does such a good job of like ripping everything away from from both chris and you and they're like you're like oh man like you really like everything um you, you like lose all like standing you know there's no one to to kind of uh, hold him up that everything around him it just turns out it's him versus the world at the end um and i didn't find out i didn't work out till later so 
on the visual cues, you know, the the dad at the beginning says he hates deer. He gets killed by the antlers. It's the yeah. the the the, boy, the brother says that you know he, he talks about loving wrestling. He dies wrestling with with Chris. Did you notice? The, did you notice the, as well? Because they mentioned, I think it was jujitsu or something at one point. Yeah. They mentioned like oh how it's yeah, like a tactical thing. Yeah, it's like chess. And then did you notice how um when he's trying to escape and the brother tries to to stop him. He puts his foot on the door every time he opens it, and then yeah, he yeah, does yeah. it. He he notices that he's doing it, and then he uses that to his advantage to stab him in the leg when he goes to shut the door with his leg. It's just moments like that which are like just mm-hmm. call back to earlier moments in the film. Because I'm and, and just like visual, as you mentioned, like the visual stuff. There's so many things. There's like the separation of the milk and the cereal. Um which I thought was really cool. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah, so she had, like, the, the white and the coloured things separate. Then you've yeah. also got, like, all the people that arrive at the house come in, like, black cars, mm-hmm. and they're all wearing black suits, and... Um, oh, there's just so many moments like that. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. What, see, there's no other moments well. I can't, I can't quite uh, remember. But then I think there's, the, there's, like, the, the girl... cotton as well, which I thought was just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulling the cotton out of the chair. Yeah, that was just so... I remember there's a Jordan Peele video. Uh, if you've not seen, I recommend it. Where he basically on YouTube, I think it was for Vanity Fair or something. He goes through a bunch of Reddit theories about the film and talks about them. And one of them is someone suggesting that um, he, Chris literally picks Cotton to 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 save his life. So it's genuinely like one of mm-hmm. the. It's one of the films I just love for its like social meaning and its foreshadowing and its context and. Yeah, I just, I just love the, I just love it so much. <laughs> and and the last uh, one of those um, little um, in references that I will bring up that um, brings me on to one of my negatives is that uh, obviously he's right at the end is his girlfriend Rose dies laying on the side of the road, no one helping her like you know he his mum did, and she kind of you know, guilt tripped him about that. No, she like said that she was the only person, like he was the only person she could trust with the knowledge and stuff. And he relied on her and she ended up dying the same way that his mum did. That leads me on to the ending in that I thought that was another um, failure of the film. Another thing that, you know, I guess it's nitpicking. The problem I had with the film was I thought the ending was a little bit cheap. Uh, You've gone through all that stuff with Chris. Um, It's so, you know, it's such, it's so, the end is so dark. It's such a battle, you know, it's it's, it's his, you know, the psychological um, versus physical, him trying to get out and dealing with both the stress of the Sunker place and with having to kill the people that he pretended to like so recently. And then that's, Kind of, and then he has to leave his person that he thought he loved in the same state that he's his own mother did when he died as a, when she died as a child. Then with that some like buddy cop style comedy with with him and his 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 uh, best mate making jokes about you know thing and it's like picks him up and it's like this is TSA and all that stuff. I told you what did I tell you about going to a white bitch's house and stuff. I thought that was a bit cheap. I thought you know if, if you ended the film before he showed up, if you ended the film with the police lights on his face. So yeah, have, have you seen? So there was. Have you seen the alternate ending? No, I didn't know there was one. Okay, so they. I think it came out with like the DVD or Blu-ray release, release or whatever of the film, but it's on YouTube. You can go watch it. Um, they've done. They, there's an alternate ending where the police officer is actually like just a genuine police officer who like sees this scene and arrests him and he goes to prison or whatever. Um, and basically, Jordan Peele has said like in interviews and stuff that 
he didn't want Chris to have gone through all of that like horror and trauma and then and then have to suffer the consequence he like it's kind of one of those ones where the ending does feel a bit cheap but given that it's kind of this comedy horror I think I think the alternative is much worse and it sends a completely different message which I don't think would have worked as well I don't know though it's kind of I see what you mean but I also think think that if it had gone with the alternate ending it would have been so depressing that it would have just been like unbearable almost to to watch or maybe end it with you see it's Chris's mate you know he doesn't do the the cheesy dialogue but he just opens the door and he walks up to him yeah I I think that's just kind of calling back to Peel's roots though in like comedy because obviously yeah of course he has that and that's one of the things I liked as well it's quite a funny film yeah, you have this. Um, I remember going to see. I'm not sure if you've seen the the death of Stalin, but I I went to a no. screening of that when it first came out, and the one of the writers, um, Ian Martin, he's from London but lives in Lancaster, where I where I go to uni or went to uni, and so he was there at the the screening and did a little Q and A afterwards, mm-hmm. and one of the things he said about that film was, is it's kind of this zebra of a film where it's like these stripes of comedy and horror and you're never mm-hmm. really quite sure whether it's supposed to be a comedy that has horror accent or a horror that has comedic accent and that's it's kind of like you've got like the polar opposites you've got Shaun of the Dead which is clearly a comedy which plays on horror tropes then you've got mm-hmm. other films which are the opposite which is like a clear horror but has comedic relief and this is that's one of the reasons why I like to get out of it is because it has genuine it's a genuine comedy and a genuine horror and it has moments of both and I just I think that's what makes it like a really unique film um, in that it has these kind of these like duality to it like obviously they're kind of like the two sides of the same coin comedy and horror and it has like that duality to it where it's got both moments um, which again I think is, is born out from from Peel's um, comedic roots but given that this is his first directorial date like his directorial debut it's just incredible mm-hmm. I, I think as a debut see I I I, uh, I did get serious Queen and Slim vibes towards the end you know when that, like as soon as he got out of the house as soon as he started killing the the members of Rose's family I started thinking like oh god this he's just going to end up going to prison That's what I kept thinking like he's going to get yeah. caught for this and he's like he's going to framed on this stuff and then when the police car showed up I was like exactly the same thing that happens in Queen and Slim is Daniel mm-hmm. Kaluuya is that he's found with a body and they think you know he's killed the police officer and, yeah. and you know he has killed the police officer but only through self-defense and, and it's like and it's the whole thing again of like oh no it's like the same character in both films is going to get um, framed for, for killing someone in self-defense again it's like oh yeah. no and then it was a bit well, of a relief but yeah I did think it was a bit, a bit comedic and yeah well that's one of the like Get Out is kind of similar in a vein like in a way it's not like it's one of the reasons why Get Out works so well is one of the reasons why I wanted to like the Purge films but I only yeah. ever saw the first two. Like, I saw Purge and Purge Anarchy. I never watched Election Year. I never watched the TV show. And I never watched um, the first Purge. But that's the reason why I wanted to like those films. Because it, it's this, like, horror, twisted, like, horror, kind of strange sort of scenario. But has, like, the social and cultural and political, like, messages and like when they when they announced the first purge and they had the um poster that had the donald trump style hat on it yeah i thought right okay i've not seen election year but if 
if they do this right, they could they could make a big statement and they could do something really really good if they did if if they, if they play this right, they'd be clever about it and they do something which has some kind of above surface level political meaning then sure i will probably wind up watching this and then i just heard what they did with it and i was like okay cool it's just the same film um Mm -hmm. but that's why i wanted to like those films because it it is this horror steeped in like political allegory yeah yeah and it's uh it's always a shame when they when they go down the the easy route and um and maybe the uh it's a little bit like blade runner maybe that i felt like the ending maybe went down the easy route with um the theatrical route, the easy to digest route with uh, with that one, yeah. but I think to to wrap it all up, um, because I don't want to split this into two parts again. I uh, I could talk about Get Out all day, but I as much as I said moan about the nitpicked about the ending and and perhaps the the horror elements, I think that it was all in all a really good film, very very solid cinematography, excellent performances, a good plot, believable characters, and yeah. you know a funny. Uh, backbone to a serious story and touched upon some some issues that um, are as important uh, today as they have been when the film came out and has have been over the last half you know as, as long as uh, last 300 years or so yeah, some so great performances, um, though. like Alice exactly Williams, like excellent. you said yeah that one so, scene where she's on the phone i was just yeah it's yeah. so good and then obviously the crying of kaluuya because i, yeah, I yeah. just a, as a final point i remember reading that peel basically said that kaluuya got the part on the basis of that one scene, because he could just mm-hmm. cry on command the perfect way every time at that one moment when he cries. Um, yeah, just full of great performances as well. Like, those two, 100%. amazing. Yeah. Of course. And uh, if I had to give it a, a rating out of 10, it is tough, um, but, you know, I'm going high again. Last week, I said nine for Blade Runner. Since then, I, I actually given it five star on, uh, on Letterboxd. But I think... In a similar vein, I think I'm going to give this one a nine as well. I think this one was a nine out of ten film. I thought it was excellent, um, and uh, yeah, you know, a bit like Blade Runner. As soon as the film finished, I just want to rewatch it. Um, I've got a big problem with um, my attention span. Um, I've got really bad attention span, so I stop and start films all the time, and, and you know, I don't ingest them in one. That's why I love the cinema because I'm forced to sit in there. But you know, I did stop and start with this film. Watched a little bit, stopped it when my phone was, and then after a certain point. You know, after like 35, 40 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, it just, you know, when the events started going down, I just glued, which is rare for me. You know, I just, for an hour plus, I just couldn't, didn't even look away and, and you know, and I managed to get the whole thing down me because it was just so uh, compelling. But that finish, wraps up our, our section on uh, on those two films, Giving Goodfellas an 8 from from you, from my selection, and uh, Get Out a 9 from your selection, from me. And we're going to be uh, going on to... Last thing was we're talking about next week's episode. Uh, we have got a guest, don't we, Jeff Jordan? Yeah. So the 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 uh, elusive, enigmatic uh, Johnny Bentley, who uh, is the friend I keep referring to all the time about mm-hmm. Blade Runner and Pulp Fiction and all the other films. So yeah, he's going to be coming on. Um, very much into films, probably more so. Well, he knows probably more about film than I do. Seen more, probably more films than I have, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, for sure, uh, he's going to be coming on next week. Big football fan as well. So, you know, I might talk about Maradona or Wayne Rooney or something next week as well. Um, we talk about the uh, the impressive Man City victory over Liverpool this uh, coming week. Uh, that's fingers crossed. That's hope so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, yeah so, we're, we're looking yeah. at... What are we going to be looking at? What film are we going to look at? What film have we not all seen, which is a crime against film? 
We're going for The Shining. Yeah, can you believe it? None of us have seen The Shining. So we're going to be looking at that. Uh, that's uh, that's everything for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. This has been the Now Showing Podcast uh, with me, Sam, JL, and boom. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs>